Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through to 6. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honour than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honour than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness of what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Thank you, Paul. Do keep that passage open in front of you. I think it's fair to say that we in our culture have a complicated relationship with heroes. A couple of hundred years ago, things were a lot more straightforward. If someone did something great, we put a statue up. Easy. That is not the case anymore. We still indulge in hero worship, but there's always a sense of provisionality about it, isn't there? What if we discover some skeleton in the closet? What if we unearth a tweet or a private letter or a link to some unsavoury historical institution? Then the statue must come down. And yet, we want heroes, don't we? We want people to look up to. We want leaders who are role models. Well, for Jewish people, at the time the book of Hebrews was written, there is one man who stood head and shoulders above the rest, and that is the man Moses. Now, they didn't put up statues to Moses. I think even the most obsessed Moses fan would realise that probably wasn't what he'd want. But he had achieved an almost cult hero-like status in the minds of Jewish people. The Jewish historian Josephus, writing at about the same time as the book of Hebrews, said this, he was one that exceeded all men that ever were in understanding and made the best use of what his understanding suggested to him. He had a very graceful way of speaking and addressing himself to the multitude. And as to his other qualifications, he had such a full command of his passions as if he hardly had any in his soul and only knew them by their names, as either perceiving them in other men than in himself. He was also such a general of an army as is seldom seen, as well as such a prophet as was never known, And this to such a degree that whatsoever he pronounced, you would think you heard the voice of God himself. And you know, Josephus didn't make all that up. Moses is an absolutely extraordinary figure in the Bible. He gave up the riches of Pharaoh's palace to lead an enslaved people through the desert to the promised land. He's described in Numbers 12 as the most humble man on the planet. And in Deuteronomy 34, he is called the greatest prophet, the greatest wonder worker, and the greatest leader that Israel ever had. He's kind of a big deal. Why are we talking about this? Well, in this passage that Paul just read to us, the writer of this letter to the Hebrews is going to compare Moses to Jesus Christ. He's not going to say anything negative about Moses at all. Moses was exactly who Numbers and Deuteronomy said he was, and he wasn't a million miles away from who Josephus said he was. 
But the people receiving this letter urgently need to hear that Jesus is better. Why is it so important that they need to hear that? I'm sure you know this already, but let me refresh your memory. It's because of three facts about the first recipients of this letter. These are the three facts. They are Jewish, they are Christian, and they are tired. They were Jewish. They're from a Jewish background. They'd grown up all their lives steeped in the teachings of the Old Testament, attending the synagogue, hearing the Torah. Their lives, it's fair to say, had revolved around Moses and the covenant which God made with him at Sinai. They were Jewish. Secondly, they were Christian. At some point, they'd heard the gospel of Jesus. They'd recognized that he was the longed-for Messiah, the Christ, the one in whom all the hopes of Israel had come to fulfillment. They had taken the hard and costly step of putting their trust in him and reorganizing their lives around him. They'd left the synagogue, perhaps left their families, and they'd begun a local church. They'd accepted the offer of forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life, and they'd begun to urge their families and neighbours and friends to trust in Jesus too. And thirdly, they were tired. As we read through this letter, we begin to get some hints that things had been very, very hard for this young church family. There's the suggestion that a previous generation of their church leaders had been persecuted and killed for their faith. And there's the definite sense that the daily grind of living for Jesus was starting to get them down. The daily battle of living for him, fighting sin, avoiding temptation, trying to be joyful in suffering, trying to share the gospel, all while being shunned and sneered at and whispered about by the rest of their city, even by their own families. They were tired. Their heads were beginning to drop. Their fire was beginning to die out. They'd begun to be a bit sporadic about gathering as a church family. We can get that sense from Hebrews 2. They'd begun to find excuses perhaps not to turn up. It was no longer that fixed, unchangeable thing in the diary like it used to be. Sunday equals church. Now it was church if they weren't too tired and something else didn't come up. And if they got out of bed early enough. And it seems as well as though doubts had begun to creep in. Absolutely sure that Jesus is the Messiah. Are we completely convinced that He's the fulfillment of everything God promised to our fathers. What what if we're wrong? What if we're wrong about everything? They were tired. And what do you do when you're tired? I'll tell you what I do when I'm tired. I seek comfort. I would like the following things. I want a sofa. I want a duvet. I want a plate of cheese on toast about this high. And I quite like a video game. Why? Because that's what I grew up with. Cheese on toast and video games. That's my childhood. That's familiar to me. That's home. That's comfy. For you, it might be something else. But there'll be something, a place, an activity, a food, maybe a sin, which feels comfortable and familiar and feels like home. As the band The Grey Havens sing, you're caught standing still, you think you'll be fine, and you're back to what you know, what's easy, what you like. Well, this church was standing still. And when Christians stand still, they go backwards. They are back to what they know, what's easy, what they like. And for them, that was their Jewish heritage. When they are tired and tempted to give up on Jesus, they don't become materialists or atheists or idolaters. That's not where they come from. They go home to Moses. 
They'll go home to the old covenant, to their Jewish roots. Now, we might think that is a much more wholesome form of rebellion than I usually manage. But the scandalous truth of the letter of Hebrews is this, and this is the big idea of our passage tonight. If you abandon Jesus for Moses, great though Moses is, that is as deadly and as foolish as abandoning him for idols. It is as deadly and foolish as abandoning him for godless atheism. Or to put it more positively, Jesus is so much better than Moses than the idea of leaving him, even for Moses, doesn't bear thinking about. Now, I don't know what you're going through at the moment. I don't know what's making you tired as a Christian. And I don't know what's home for you either. I don't know what old familiar sins tempt you or what comfortable, more socially acceptable ways of life you are likely to abandon Jesus for. But my prayer for tonight, what I've been praying as I've been preparing, is that we will have such a bigger vision of Jesus, one even greater than Moses, that when we are tired, we will stick with him, pursue him, flee to him, enjoy him, be refreshed by him, trust in him. How are we going to do that? Well, how is the author going to convince his hearers and us that Jesus is better, that he's worth sticking with? First, he tells us who you are in Jesus. Look with me at verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, and we'll stop there. I know that's only halfway through the sentence, but that's enough to be going on with. Look at how he describes his hearers. First, he calls them holy. I'm sure you know what holy means. It means to be set apart for God. Under the Old Testament sacrificial system, the priests and the sacrifices and the temple and all the utensils that the priests used, they all had to be holy. That is, set apart for God's service, clean and pure and worthy to be used for him and only him. Well, that is what the Bible says Christians are. That's what he says you are that you are set apart for God's service, clean and pure and worthy to be used for him. Do you know that's who you are in Christ? Do you feel that? Do you feel clean and pure and worthy? I, I don't. I don't always feel like that. I very often feel unclean and impure and unworthy because of my sin. But Hebrews insists, the word of God insists, no, this is who you are in Christ. You are holy As God looks at you, even as he looks down into the deepest depths of your conscience, as we're going to read in chapters 9 and 10, he sees holiness, purity, perfection even. How has he done that? Well, he's already explained back in 2 verse 11, cast your eyes up, I know you looked at this already, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family, so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. You looked at this already last night. You are holy because Jesus has made you holy. His priestly work, his sacrifice in our place, cleanses us deep down, makes us fit to approach God, makes us worthy to be used by him. We are holy in Christ. Secondly, we are brothers and sisters. That's in Hebrews 2.11.2, and it's shot throughout the book. Hebrews emphasizes a way of thinking about Jesus that I don't think is as clear anywhere else in the Bible that Jesus is our older brother. I know there's a cliche about, you know, typical overachieving perfect big brothers. As a big brother myself, I've never really understood the envy. It's not my fault I'm the best. (laughs) But Jesus really is the perfect big brother, the one who perfectly images his father. 
the one who is the rightful and true heir of the whole universe. And yet, unlike some big brothers, he doesn't lord it over the younger siblings. No, he shares his glory, shares his inheritance, shares his intimate relationship with the Father, with all those who put their trust in him. He's not ashamed to call you brother and sister. A few years ago, I went to Barcelona and visited the Sagrada Familia, the Cathedral of the Holy Family. And what's meant by that in Roman Catholic thought is Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. But as Jesus himself said, his family are those who trust in him and do God's will. They are the true Holy Family. And so every local church is a Sagrada Familia of even greater beauty than Anthony Gaudi can imagine. We are brothers and sisters in Jesus. And thirdly, in this verse, we are sharers in the heavenly calling. Now, I wish we had time to think about the doctrine of heaven in the book of Hebrews. It's astonishing and mind-bending and world-changing, but we don't. Suffice it to say that Jesus is the one who reunites heaven and earth, who brings humankind back into the presence of God, that presence which we lost in the Garden of Eden and only partially and provisionally reclaimed under the temple system of the Old Covenant. Now the man Christ Jesus is, chapter 1 verse 3, seated in heaven as God's perfect king. He has, 4 verse 14, passed through the heavens as God's perfect sacrifice. He is, 8 verse 1, seated in heaven because he's finished his work as God's perfect priest. And that means, 6 verse 19, I hope you're taking notes, that he is our anchor in heaven. That by being united to him, we can enjoy the presence of God in the here and now. That we, even here on earth, are also gathered around Jesus' throne in heaven, 12 verse 22. And that means we can look forward to our final home in the heavenly Jerusalem, eleven sixteen. Would you look at that? It turns out we did have time to see the doctrine of heaven in Hebrews. How about that? Heaven calls to Jesus' people and says, do you know what? You belong here. Come in. Come into the presence of God and make yourself at home. That is the heavenly call. And so can you see how already, how the writer to the Hebrews is soothing the aching bones of these tired Jewish Christians? Can you see how he is fighting for their ongoing commitment to Jesus? He's saying, look how Jesus has already loved you. Look at who you are in Jesus. Why would you want to give that up? If you're tired... If you're looking for comfort, don't look for it in your old way of life. Don't look for it in your old familiar sins. Look for it in what Jesus has done for you. And look for it in Jesus himself. That's what he does next. He shows us who Jesus is. Look at verse 2. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Now, we're going to get to Moses in a minute. Don't worry. But the author says, fix your thoughts on Jesus. So let's do that for a moment. He shows us three things about Jesus. First, he is our apostle. Fun fact, this is the only time in the whole Bible that Jesus is called an apostle. But an apostle just means someone who is sent. An apostle is like an ambassador. His job is to represent someone, to faithfully pass on their message. And we have to say that Jesus is supremely good at that job. You saw it earlier in the week in Hebrews chapter 1. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. 
The God who spoke through prophets and angels has now spoken supremely through the Son. So do you want to hear from God? Do you want to hear the truth about this world? Do you want to hear God's will for your life? Do you want to know God? Then go to Jesus. He's our apostle. Secondly, he is our high priest. Now, the writer's going to say a lot more about this in future chapters, so I'll keep it very brief. But if an apostle represents God to us, then a high priest represents us to God. He mediates between sinners and a holy God. He makes it possible for us to approach God and be in good relationship with him. So do you want to enjoy God's blessing and favor? Then go to Jesus. He's our high priest. And in both these roles, the writer tells us Jesus is faithful. He represented God to us faithfully. He's a faithful apostle. He represented us to God faithfully. He's a faithful high priest. See, the Hebrew Christians were in danger of losing faith, losing confidence, losing trust in Jesus. You'll see that much more clearly tomorrow evening. They are tired. They're starting to doubt, starting to waver starting to choose comfort over obedience. Well, Jesus never did that, praise God. He was faithful until the very end. Even when faced with the greatest temptation to think about himself and his own comfort and to shrink from obedience and back down from God's call on his life, he said, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is the ultimate faithful apostle. The ultimate faithful high priest, he is the great revealer, he is the great mediator. And the author's point in these verses is that he's even better at that than the previous record holder. So let's think about Moses. Who was Moses? Well, Moses was a faithful servant worthy of honour. He said a couple of times in this passage, Moses is, verse 2, faithful in all God's house. Verse 5, he is faithful as a servant in all God's house. Now, God's house here refers to God's people, to the household of Israel. And Moses is clearly being held up as an example to the Hebrews, something, someone to honour and someone to imitate. He's saying to them, look, you guys grew up uh, with lives centred around Moses. And, you know, that's not at all a bad thing. He was a faithful servant. He was a faithful apostle because he faithfully revealed God's words to you. He was a faithful high priest because he faithfully represented you to God. Even if his brother Aaron took on that role officially, think of the number of times Moses interceded with God on behalf of the Israelites, particularly on Mount Sinai after they'd sinned with the golden calf. And so it's right, Hebrew Christians, to pattern yourself on Moses' example. It's right to honour him. It's right to imitate him. But there's a deep irony at work in these verses, and we have to understand this irony in order to feel the full force of the argument that the writer's making here. You see, this statement about Moses, that he was faithful in all God's house, is a quote from Numbers chapter 12. And the context of that quote is really intriguing. So I wonder if you turn there with me in your Bibles, leave a finger or a ribbon or something in Hebrews and turn with me to Numbers chapter 12. It's on page 110 in my Bible, that won't help you at all. But it's, it's around there. Numbers 12. And I'll start reading from verse 1. 
Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he'd married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked. Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. Now, Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. At once the Lord said to Moses, Aaron and Miriam, come out to the tent of meeting, all three of you. So the three of them went out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance of the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. When the two of them stepped forward, he said, listen to my words. When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams, but this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly, and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of the Lord burned against them, and he left them. In Australia, they call it cutting down the tall poppy. In Japan, the expression is the nail that sticks up gets hammered down. The Bible simply calls it envy. Even though we know that Miriam at least was older than Moses, she and Aaron still have that big brother resentment. You can sort of feel it, can't you? On the pretext of Moses' wife Zipporah being a non-Israelite, they start a whisper campaign. Why does he think he's so great anyway? Is he the only one who's done something for this people? After all, says Aaron, I'm the actual high priest around here, not him. After all, says Miriam, wasn't it me who led the singing on the banks of the Red Sea? I'd like to see him play the tambourine. It's never had any rhythm, I assume. Well, Moses won't answer the accusations himself. Did you notice that? He is, verse 3, too humble to do that. Interestingly, that in itself proves the accusations wrong, doesn't it? Moses is not exalting himself against his siblings or over the people. He's a humble and godly man, so God does it for him. Moses actually is special, he tells them. He is a man with whom God speaks face to face. The Hebrew for that idiom is literally mouth to mouth. The transcendent God of the universe has an extraordinary intimacy with this man Moses. He is God's chosen servant and he has been faithful. Not perfect, not sinless, but faithful. And so God's question to Miriam and Aaron is a very challenging one in verse 8. Why then were you not afraid? to speak against my servant Moses. To speak against Moses is to reject God's servant. To speak against Moses is to question God's choice. To speak against Moses is to disregard God's word. To speak against Moses is to rebel against God's will. You see, Miriam and Aaron might get a bit uppity that Moses has married a non-Israelite, but right now they're the ones who are behaving like non-Israelites. In fact, in their attitude to God and God's chosen servant, they're aligning themselves with Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And we know what happened to them. They're in very grave danger. As we see in verse 9, God's anger burned against them and he left them. That is the context of this quote in Hebrews 3. And as we turn back there, I want you to keep that in mind as the author moves our focus from Moses to Jesus. And we'll come back to Numbers 12 at the end. Moses was the faithful servant worthy of honour. What do we learn about Jesus in this verse is that he is the faithful son worthy of worship. Look at verse 3. 
Jesus has been found worthy of greater honour than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honour than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future, but Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house. Do you get the gist of the passage? At every level, faithful Jesus is better than faithful Moses. Look at the comparisons the author makes. First, he says, think about the difference between a house and a builder. You see, we can admire a beautiful building like the one we're in. Uh, We can admire its uh, elegant proportions and its graceful functionality and its solid foundations. But in doing that, we're really honouring the architect, aren't we? Imagine that I were to stand admiring the Sagrada Familia in Barcelona and Anthony Gaudi himself were to come and stand next to me. And yes, I know he's dead. Just just go with it. Uh, And he were to stand next to me as we gazed up at the windows and the spires and I turned to him and said, ah, Senor Gaudi, just push off, would you, mate? I'm trying to look at the windows. That would be all wrong, wouldn't it? My attention should turn from the building to the builder. The praise I've directed towards the building ought to redound to the honour of the architect. And that is the point here. Moses, yes, is worthy of honour. But Jesus is God. Jesus is the builder of all things. Every house, says the author in verse 4, is built by someone. You can start with anything and trace it back. Admire a pencil, as I frequently do, and your mind should be drawn to the pencil factory and the machine that made it. Admire the machine and your mind should be drawn to the engineer who designed it. Admire the engineer and you might praise the parents who brought him up or the master who trained him. But keep tracing it back and eventually you get to the source. To God, the creator of life, and to Jesus, the one who is the radiance of God's glory. And so God's house, the people of Israel, they are made by and they belong to Jesus. Moses himself is a creature of God, which means he belongs body and soul to Jesus Christ. Moses is worthy of honour. Jesus is worthy of worship. Second, he says that Moses and Jesus play different roles in the house. Moses, verse 5, was a servant in God's house. A man from within the household of Israel set apart for leadership. But Jesus, verse 6, is the son over God's house. The household of God is his. It belongs to him. The son, Jesus, has authority over God's house. All of God's people owe their allegiance to him, which means that Jesus has authority over Moses. Moses owes allegiance to Jesus. Moses is a member of Jesus' house. It's similar to what we saw in chapter 1. There you pondered the amazing ministry of the mighty angelic beings. But compared to the Son, who are they? They are, chapter 1, verse 7, servants. And that means, chapter 1, verse 6, that they are currently worshipping Jesus. It's the same with Moses, a great man. But a man who nonetheless falls to his knees in awe when faced with Jesus the Son. And finally, Moses, verse 5, is a witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. Let's just pause there and think about that statement. That is a fairly amazing statement, actually. Think about everything that Moses did and said and took the Israelites through. The burning bush, the plagues, the exodus, the giving of the law, the sermons, the golden calf, the wilderness wanderings. What was 
going on there? What was that really all about? What was Moses doing? What was he serving? What was the purpose? The author says that Moses' main role was actually prophetic. All that stuff was doing was pointing forward. It was paving the way for a future revelation which God had in mind all along. All the witness of the angels and the prophets in the Old Testament, including Moses, it was never going to be fulfilled in their own day. It was all awaiting fulfillment, the fulfillment that is now come in the Son. What does all this mean? What what, what is the point of all this comparison between Moses and Jesus? What's our author trying to do? Why is the author telling this to these tired Jewish Christians? He's telling them this simply so they hold fast to Jesus. Look at verse 6. He says, We are his house if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Just remember the context with me. This is a group of Christians who are tempted to let go of Jesus and drift back to what they know, what's easy, what they like. For them, that is old covenant religion. The religion centered around Moses' membership of the house of Israel. That's home. It's just that their families are up for that. No one's going to think they're weird if they do that. It's comfy, it's nice, it's familiar. And it was, it was God-given, wasn't it? So it's still okay, right? But do you see what the authors helped them see? He's helped them see that, no, Moses, remember Moses is a member of the house of Jesus. He's an example of faithfulness. And yeah, you should imitate his faith. He is worthy of honor. But his faithful service was to point you to the son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus is just so much better. He is a better And greater Moses, he's a better apostle. He's a better high priest. He's the fulfillment of everything that Moses was on about. And that now Jesus has come. Look, you can't let go of him. Because Jesus has made you holy. He's cleansed you deep down in his conscience. Moses Moses couldn't do that. He's welcomed you into his family. Moses couldn't do that. He's called you heavenward so that you can have access to God in the heavenly realms. Moses, Moses couldn't do that. When Moses went to the tent of meeting to talk with the Lord, do you remember he came back and his, his face was radiant with having uh, communed with the glory of God. And what did the people say? They said, would you cover that up? That's terrifying. Because they could not possibly hope to do what Moses just did. Moses had access to God, but he didn't give it to anybody else. He couldn't. It wasn't his job. But now Jesus has come. He's revealed, Jesus, he's revealed God to you. He's been the faithful high priest and he's called you heavenward. He has begun a new exodus, a journey to the new promised land that is so much better. And it's what all that old covenant stuff was all about anyway. And so see this irony with me. Remember Numbers 12? See the irony with me. If these Christians were to let go of Jesus, to go back to Moses now, who were they behaving like? Are they acting like Moses? Are they doing what Moses would do? Answer, no. Moses was faithful and humbly listened to God's word and pointed to Jesus. He'd be furious if you let go of Jesus to go back to him. The irony is that if you let go of Jesus and went back to Moses now, then you'd be acting like Miriam and Aaron in rejecting the servant that God had given you. 
God spoke with Moses face to face, mouth to mouth. Yes, but Jesus is God himself, God's own eternal son. To speak against Moses is to reject God's servant, but to go back to Moses now Jesus has gone would be to reject, Jesus come would be to reject God's son. To abandon Jesus for Moses is to question God's choice, to disregard God's word, to rebel against God's will, and that is incredibly dangerous. What about you tonight? Brother, sister, I don't know what pressures you face to let go of Jesus. I don't know what comfortable way of life draws you away from him. I don't know what old familiar sin still tempts you. I don't know what persecution you face from your friends, your neighbours, your family that makes you think the Christian life actually is just too tough. It isn't worth bothering with and you just want to give up and do what everyone says you should do and to go back to what you know and what's easy and what you like. I don't know. I hope someone in your church family does and is, uh, can help you. But the point of the passage is this. Don't give up on Jesus. Hold fast to him. Because even if you were to let go of Jesus and go back to Moses, which is basically the second best option you would still be putting yourself out of God's house, putting yourself in danger of God's burning anger, putting yourself in the same position of Miriam and Aaron. And that's if you choose the best option, the best way of rejecting Jesus. Frankly, if I'm letting go of Jesus, I'm not going to do anything as wholesome as going back to old covenant religion. Are you? I'm going to go somewhere much, much less great. And it'll be a lot worse. And I'd be in so much more danger. Don't let go of Jesus. Hold fast to him. Because what happens when you do? What happens when you do the hard thing of clinging to Jesus when it's tough, when persecution comes, when temptation comes, when suffering comes? What happens to you when you trust in Jesus? Well, you know, verse 6, that you have the hope of glory. You have the heavenward call. That God himself says to you, come home and make yourself at home with me. Don't seek comfort in plates of cheese on toast or old covenant religion or anything else, what other sin that you really, really like. Don't seek comfort there. It's an empty promise. Come to me and I will give you home. I will give you comfort. I will give you rest. Because here is the heavenward call. Come home to Christ. Cling to him. Approach God with confidence. Moses couldn't give you that. Nothing in this world can give you that. Jesus can give you that. Confidence to approach God, to call him home, to find comfort in him. Don't let go of Jesus. Hold fast to him. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess that we often choose comfort over obedience, that there are things we go back to, familiar ways of being, familiar places or activities, and we confess familiar sins which feel comfortable, which feel nice, which feel like home. And we're sorry. Father, thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Thank you that he can call us home and does call us home in the cross. 
Thank you that he has granted us access to you where we can have confidence to approach you and be home with you. And so, Father, when we are tired, may we return to him, fix our eyes on him, pursue him, trust him. Help us do that, Father, and help us in our churches to help each other to do that too. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.